All right, well, let's begin with a couple of quick questions that I received over the week. Uh, I hope you're, you are enjoying uh, this. I know we've been very deep and very intense and quite theological and a little bit philosophical, and some of you don't even know what any of those words mean, and that's cool uh, because if, if I was going to graph how we've gone this term... We kind of took a dive really deep to get the foundations right, but it's okay because we're on the way up and we're going to get into practical land. Who likes practical land? It's like, yeah, I get all of that theory, but how do I actually, like, what should I do with my life? Well, good news is we're headed there. Um, Tonight, we're going to finish off probably the super deep theological stuff and we're on our way up. So by the end of the term, it's going to be so to the point so practical, so applicable to your life. So uh, there's a lot at the end of the tunnel if you're struggling. <laughs> uh, but if you're enjoying it, then keep enjoying it. It's really cool. Um, I don't know whether anyone's got me a pulpit, but I will need it in a little bit. Um, so that would be awesome. But I had this really interesting question come my way from one of you. And it was this. It said, why does the Bible say God's, lowercase g-o-d-s, as though there are more than one God, right? Good question. I mean, isn't Christianity this monotheistic religion, right? You shall have no other God except for me. Worship only the Lord God of Israel, right? And it's it's a fantastic question. And so what we need to do is we need to define what that lowercase g-o-d-s God's term means, right? Because I'm not going to get up here and say, well, actually, Christianity is polytheistic, like Hinduism and all that stuff. Don't worry, I'm not going to get up here and preach a heresy or anything like that. Um, Because there is only one God. There is only one creator from whom all things come. Bible clearly teaches us that. There's one uncaused being. He just exists because he has to. That's his nature. And he is who created everything that exists. But the Bible reveals to us that there are other spiritual beings up there or out there, or it's hard to say where heaven or that dimension is, wherever God is, there are other spiritual beings that he created too. Now, a lot of you would understand angels and you would accept, yeah, angels, yeah, I can believe that that would be a thing. And, and, and all we need to do is just extend that definition of angels a little bit further to incorporate the other terms that are used to describe these spiritual beings in the Bible. Sometimes they're called lowercase g-o-d-s, gods. The gods, God is among the gods. He takes his place. That was what Psalm 82 said last week, that the Most High, God, takes his place among the gods and he's grilling them for not doing the right thing. In other places, they're called the sons of God. In other places, they're called the heavenly host. You know, when the Bible talks about how the heavenly host are celebrating and praising how awesome God is. Um, in Daniel, he refers to them as the watchers. They're watching, you know, like Netflix watch party. They're watching what's going on on earth. There's lots of different names for them. And lowercase g, gods, is one of those names. So you don't need to freak out. We are still monotheistic in that there is only one God. But... There are other spiritual beings that you could refer to as a little g God if you wanted to. Question number two is, uh, when did God create his spiritual family? So we established there's these beings 
other than God that are also spiritual beings? And, and the question is, when did he make them? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> the Bible doesn't really tell us when. Uh, we know it was before he created us, but he created them at some point, so there must have been a point where they didn't exist. Um, so there was God without them, and then there was God with them. And I don't know whether time even exists or whether he created time when he created us, but let's not get into that. It's a bit crazy. So uh, we don't actually know. We just know that he did create them at some point. And the last question is, and this is a really deep one. Are you ready? Turn to the person next to say, are you ready? Does Jesus somehow redeem God's spiritual family too? We can thank Sammy for that question. Whew, big question. I mean, we established last week, and we're going to do a recap in a minute. <clears throat> um, and the, the answer to that one is I'm not sure yet. Uh, it, it appears that there are some certain verses that are like, you know, in Revelation, they talk about the future, and they're really hard to interpret what they mean. And it seems that Jesus might do some redemption on that side of things, but they would have to also want to repent and I don't see any indication of that in the Bible. So the answer is, I might get back to you on that and uh, do a bit more research because it's a can of worms. So there we go. There's the questions for this week. If you had any other questions, please send them in. Talk to me. Talk to you, one of your leaders. Uh, get some feedback. And uh, I can do a bit of research and try and answer them for you. So tonight is part two of... A message I titled, well, what does God want? What does he want? And uh, we established that he's real. We established that Christianity seems to be the way to go. It makes the most sense. So then what does the Christian God want? Why did he create us? Why did he create anything at all? What's his go? And so let's, let's uh, continue God's story. We've got the story of God, and uh, we're going to continue it. The story of God and his creation continued. I'm going to put the slides on my phone at the same time so I can figure out what's coming up this week because there's like over 40 slides, uh, and, and we're going to follow it. But it's good. A lot of them are just verses, and you've got to have multiple verses over multiple slides because it doesn't fit, but it's all good. So let's, uh, let's go to our summary that we left off from last week. So we've got this cool little diagram. I hope it makes sense to you. And it's, it's God's story so far. So we established he's got a spiritual family. And there are some of the names of, of what they're referred to in the Bible. And then he's got an earthly family. He made us to be in his image and uh, to rule over and take care of his creation. Now, there's this thing that I remember as I was growing up in my teenage years. And whenever dad would drop me off somewhere, you know, maybe to the plaza or to a friend's house, or I'd go out with some friends to the beach or something, he'd always say this saying, and he'd say, have fun, but remember whose representative you are. Has anyone else's parents say that? Other than Solly, Judah, and Elijah? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Remember whose representative you are? And it's like, yeah, you know what? I, I'm representing Rick and Naomi Wherever I go, I'm, I'm a little image of what they are like, even when they're not around. And, and, and Dad used to say that even as I got a bit older and I had my own license and I'd be leaving the house, he'd remember whose representative you are. 
And that's kind of what God did. He, he made us and his spiritual family in his image. In other words, he says, hey, in whatever you do, remember whose representative you are. You represent me. You are what the world sees, that they see you, and you should be an image of what I am like. But we didn't remember whose representative we were. And it start, we, we see the start of a rebellion. And it's clear that God's spiritual family have some of his attributes, including free will and intelligence. And maybe they're not so intelligent because some of them decided they knew better than God. And we see the snake in Genesis 3 tempting, uh, tempting us to sin. Then we see some more get up to mischief and corrupting the world in Genesis 6. And then we see God allotting the nations to another group of these uh, lowercase g gods. And then they too stuffed up the uh, God's original intention and rebelled. And so we see a whole lot of rebellion happen. But it's not just their fault because we also stuffed it up. We can't just blame spiritual darkness for our problems because we too disobey God. We too are corrupt. And so... That introduced death. We lost eternal life in God's presence. Corruption. We've got a wicked influence from spiritual darkness who helps us just get an A-plus in sinning. And then we are separated from God. We are no longer his people. The people he made in the beginning with this awesome plan are no longer his people. He, he put us under other authorities. And now we're left in a point of what does God do? It's a bit of a mess, right? Let's go to the next slide. How does God fix the world? Because that was a pretty, pretty bit of, uh, of a down note that we finished last week on. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. So strap on your seatbelts again. If you didn't do it last week, you should have, and you would have realized that by about slide 36. But uh, put your seatbelts on. If you need to stretch your legs quickly, get up, stretch your legs you know, get some energy out because we're going to go on another ride and hear the second half of this story about how God fixes the world. So we pick up, we were in Genesis chapter 11 and we heard about the story of the Tower of Babel where all the peoples of the earth got their language confused and all the cultures were separated from that point. And we go, how does God fix this? But if you turn the page coincidentally or not coincidentally at all, we get to Genesis chapter 12. 11 comes after 12. That checks out. But what story is at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12? Let me read it to you. We'll put it up here. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who dishonors you. Oh, yeah, him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is pretty cool because we now realize why God called Abraham or Abram at this point. It's because he didn't have a people anymore. And instead of abandoning us and giving up and saying, well, that didn't work. Let's just press the restart button on the universe and try something different with 
aliens or something. He didn't. He stuck with us and he decided, you know what? I'm going to find someone who's still loyal to me and somebody who can't have children. Abraham was in his 80s when God first called him. That's pretty old. But he had not had any children. His wife, Sarah, was 10 years younger than him. And so God, he, he calls him out and he wants to test, is Abraham going to be the guy that I can start a new people, a people through which I can redeem everything? So let's keep reading uh, Genesis chapter 22, I think. Excellent. Oh, actually, I need to fill you in on a bit of the story. So, so God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. And Abraham says, that sounds awesome. I'll follow you, God, except I'm really old and I can't have kids. Like I'm way past that age. You should have called me 70 or so years ago, and maybe I would have been ready for it. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to choose somebody who can't have children to prove that these are my people. These are not Abraham's people. These are not the land of your father's people, whoever they're under. These are my specific people. And so he does a miracle and he allows them to have a kid. And uh, at this stage, Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 when they have a kid. Just, if you have a great-grandparent, just imagine your great-grandparent. I don't know if they're that old. Imagine a 90 and 100-year-old. And then imagine them carrying around a newborn baby. It's theirs. Legit. 100% natural or supernatural. I don't know. That would be weird, right? Like, I, I, I even have my own kids. It's like, well, these are my kids. Imagine being 100 years old and you're a father. Hey, this is awesome. God starts out a new people. But God, he wants to test something because people have not been reliable. God wants our loyalty. He wants us to believe in him and worship him and follow him and be his people. And so he wants to test Abraham. And so he thinks, well, I've, I've given him a son which he hasn't been able to have. And now I'm going to ask for his son back. The thing that I promised him, I'm going to ask him to lay it down and give it back. And it's pretty freaky because he asks Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice your son. Go and, and give him back to me in a sacrifice on an altar. So poor Isaac doesn't know what's going on. Abraham takes him up out there one day. And uh, Abraham decides that he's going to listen to God. Because he's God's God, man. Don't mess with God. And he he's, doesn't really want to sacrifice his son. But he decides that he needs to obey God. And, and Isaac, who's old enough to be a bit cluey, he's like, Hey, Dad, we're going to do a sacrifice like we usually do. We've got the knife, yep, we've got the wood, yep, we've got the flint, we can start the fire, yep, good. But where's the lamb? Like, where's the animal? You know, I don't see any animal, Dad. What, what are we going to do here? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. Thinking in his head, goodness, I hope I don't have to sacrifice my son. And so, sure enough, Abraham, he puts Isaac, he makes this altar, and he says, hey, can you just lie down on it, just check Check it or something. And, and he goes to sacrifice his son. The Bible says that he drew his, his knife ready to, to do it. Now, I don't, as a dad, I couldn't do it. I'm like, sorry, God. I wouldn't be able to do that. But Abraham's, he, he decides to do it. And God shouts out. He says, stop. That's all I needed. 
I just needed to know that you would, you would obey me. And at the same time, he heard there was a little lamb stuck in a bush. I'm sorry if anyone's like vegan here or anything like that. There's a lamb stuck in the bush. And sure enough, God provides a different sacrifice and Isaac doesn't have to be killed at all. And God never intended Isaac to be killed. He just wanted to test whether Abraham would be loyal to him. And he was. And so when Abraham comes through, we see this. Um, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. He said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God's figured out this is the guy. This is the guy that I'm going to start a new people from. A people that will end up redeeming all the other nations. God's plan A is still his plan A. He's not giving up on the ones that rebelled. And so then we go through this journey. And uh, let's have a look at this journey I put up. And it, honestly, it's an emotional roller coaster. God's people are broken human beings. And they go through this journey of obedience and disobedience and following God and not following God. God gives them a law, so he leads them out of Egypt and he gives them, hey, if you just follow these laws, it will help set you apart to be my people. It will make you different from the other nations and it will cause you to live a life that is blessed. It's like, hey, God's trying to do us a solid by giving us a map to follow. But sure enough, Israel breaks the law. God, he says, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to look after you. I'm going to rule over you. I'm going to be a great king. And they say, oh, that's nice, God, but we want our own king. And so they make Saul their own king. And then God realizes, well, he already knew that was going to be a huge mistake. Israel starts to realize that Saul's not that great of a king. And so God raises up David, a man after his own heart, to become king. And he rules uh, by following God. He rules God's people God's way. And that's really good. But then unfortunately, his son doesn't do that. Solomon is not loyal. This Solomon's really good. But that Solomon is not loyal. He brought in all these other gods to worship and he had 300 wives or something crazy. Could even mean 700 actually. I didn't fact check that. It's, it's a lot. It's too many. You wouldn't remember, remember all their names. Hey, babe. Hey, babe. Hey, babe. Anyway. But he starts to just, yeah, what's your culture? Where are you from? What God do you worship? Yeah, just add it to the pile. Let's just, let's just expand because he's the wealthiest kingdom in the world. Solomon is the most powerful man in the whole world. Why not? Well, let's just have a bit of everything. And he's not loyal to God. This roller coaster goes on and on. And as a result, uh, Israel gets divided. Solomon's son is an absolute disgrace. And uh, Israel gets divided into the north half and the south half. And we have Israel and Judah. And uh, you would have heard last week we talked about uh, Ahab, he was the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, he was the king of Judah. This is because the kingdom got divided and Israel is now scattered. And then Israel gets overtaken and the people get scattered all over the land and they go into exile. And and then God redeems them out of exile because they realize that their own sin got them there. Anyway, it's just this giant emotional roller coaster where God is following his people. But along the way, he gives another interesting promise. Let's have a look at that verse. And this is to David. See, David was a man after God's own heart. But he was an idiot. 
he just did stupid stuff. Like, hey, I've already got a couple of wives. He literally did. But that girl's pretty cute. I could have her husband killed and make her marry me. I don't see anything wrong with that. Great, I'm the king. Let's do that. He would do stupid stuff like that. But he would realize, sometimes God would have to prompt him, that he's done something really stupid and wrong. And this is his response. Let me read you Psalm 52. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. There's more. It'll come. Awesome. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in, my, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let's go to the next one. Purge me with hyssop. I don't even know what that is. And I shall be clean. It must be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast not away from your presence. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's saying, I know I stuffed up. I own it. I realize it. I'm in the wrong. But God, can you please make it right in me? I don't want to lose your presence. I don't want to stop being your people. And it's that believing loyalty that God wants. He knows we're not going to get it right. He knows we're not going to be perfect. But the fact that he just kept coming back to God and says, I just, whatever you do, punish me, punish me. I deserve it. But don't take your presence from me. I want to be yours. I want to be in relationship with you. And that's what God wants. And because of that, God gave him a promise. Let's have a look at the promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is at the end of David's life. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I think there's more. Is there more? Yeah. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, who, whom I put away from before you, and your house shall be your kingdom. Shall, uh, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God gives this promise to David, and we just talked about before what happens to David's family. And how that didn't work out so well. But God made a promise. And when God makes a promise, he intends to keep it. Even if it's not the way that we expect. And so this verse, this promise was a bit of a double meaning. Because we know that Solomon did build the house of the Lord. He built the temple. But at the same time, this promise was actually predicting Jesus. 
He shall call me father and I shall call him son and his kingdom will be established forever. And so we've got the promise of Abraham and we've got the promise of David and all of these things lining up through the generations. And we skip through a whole lot of other sermons. There's about a thousand other sermons you could preach on Israel. But we arrive at this place where Jesus is born. Now, there's some interesting things about this Jesus guy. And it all begins on his birthday. Now, who thinks Jesus' birthday is December 25th, Christmas Day? I'm sorry, it's not. It's when we remember his birthday. It's when we celebrate it. But it is not the day that Jesus was born. Now, I've done a bit of research and I've narrowed it down to one of two days. There could be another third one, but I think at the moment we've got two possible days from when Jesus was born. And it depends how you interpret what the Bible is saying. One of these days is, ready for it? September 11, 3 BC. Three years before the calendar shifted over. And you get to that date with some other things that I'm not going to take the time to explain now. But basically, the Bible talks about what the configuration of constellations and stars in the sky looked like when Jesus was born. And there's a virgin uh, constellation, and she is pregnant with the sun in her belly at this particular time of the year, and the moon is at her feet, and there's a dragon below her that's waiting to devour the baby. And then above her, there's 12 stars, and then above that, there's a, the king star, which is the planet Jupiter, and it's within the constellation of Leo, the lion, right? So you've got all of these amazing things about a lion coming from the tribe of Judah and a virgin conceiving a baby, and all of this stuff... And all of that only lines up on September 11, 3 BC. It could have been that day, or it could be March 26 BC. And that is uh, the time where the Hebrew New Year began. It was the time of new beginnings. It was also the time of year where shepherds would be out in their fields at night waiting for new lambs to be born. And it would be very fitting that the Lamb of God would be born in lambing season when the new lambs come into the earth. Because everything Jesus did was on a significant day. He died on the Passover lamb when the lamb was killed. He rose again at the festival of first fruits. When he did Palm Sunday, he, he was received by the people um, uh, the same festival day where they would receive the young lambs that they were later going to kill for Passover. So Jesus, like, he picked days. So... I tell you this because regardless of which day it was, if it was one or the other, there were some significant things happening at that time when Jesus was born. And so the, uh, the gods of the other nations would have been watching. They know that God hasn't given up on his people. And they're waiting to see what is God going to do to fix the world? What is his plan? And we see, you know, the story of the wise men in the, in the manger, the nativity scene where the wise men come and give the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These guys came from the land of Babylon, which is where Daniel stayed the rest of his life, right? So Daniel gets exiled from Israel years and years and years earlier. He follows God and becomes made this really powerful person in the land, ahead of all the wise men. And he predicts when the Messiah would come. 
And so generations down the line, we have these wise men who are following the teachings of Daniel given to him by God, and they're looking at the heavens and they figure out, according to their calendar, that the king of the Jews is being, is being born. So they travel for two years and, and eventually they arrive and they see Jesus. So even humans are noticing something is going on at this point in time. In the, in the history of the world, something very, very unique is happening. And the spiritual uh, darkness is also noticing this. So they know that Jesus is up to something. And so we see him grow up. And there are some things in Jesus' life that you probably wouldn't notice if we didn't talk about what we talked about last week. And so I wanted to take a few of these moments in Jesus' life and show you some really cool stuff. So... Let's have a look at Matthew chapter 4. We see the story of the temptation of Jesus. So he goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist, and then the Spirit of the Lord descends on him like a dove, and it's all awesome and magical. And then it says Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days to confront temptation. And so we see this story, and you know, you know how the devil's like, hey, Jesus, if you're hungry and you're the son of God, why don't you just turn those rocks into bread? And Jesus is like, uh-uh, I can't do that. And then he's like, well, hey, if you're really who you say you are, you can just climb on top of that temple and then jump off and angels will catch you and everyone will be like, wow, that's really cool. He's from God. And God, Jesus is like, hey, I'm not going to test God. And then there's this really interesting verse in the last temptation. And we just skipped all that. I just paraphrased it. Let's go to the next one. And, and, and he says this, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That's my Satan voice. And then Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him, and angels come and ministered to him. Why could the devil say to Jesus, You want the nations? I can give them to you. I used to think, Oh, the devil's bluffing. Like, he, he can't, you know, he can't do that. But then I started to research this stuff, and I realized, Well, actually, I don't think Satan is the king of all the bad guys, but I think he's got some really good street cred, right? He's the original rebel. He's the first one to stick it to the God, right? And so I think there's a bit of allyship going on, and he's saying, hey, I've got a bit of influence with the heads of nations, these spiritual authorities. Jesus, if you just worship me, if you just make me the most high, if you put me in the position of the most high of the council... I can give you what you want. I can give you your people back. Because he thinks Jesus must be here because God wants his people back. Pretty interesting. Jesus doesn't take the trade. So let's continue on in Mark chapter 1. We see another story. So Jesus, he, he's, he's in... Uh, the area of Israel. He's, he's in the, the place where God is king. He's, in, he's with Israel, right? The, the people of God. And he's, he's teaching in the synagogue. And then uh, we read, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. 
This is like a demon possession kind of situation. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Very interesting. It's, it's as if Satan's like, I couldn't figure out what Jesus' plan was in the desert. Let's send one of these lower-ranking demon guys, go and possess that guy or, or whatever, send him in and ask Jesus point blank, why are you here? Hey, Jesus, why are you here? Have you come to destroy us? They're trying to fish. Like, what's God's plan? They don't actually know what God's doing. Why, why is Jesus here in the flesh? Why is God here in the flesh? They saw when he was baptized, the dove descended. The Spirit of God's on this guy. And they're like, Jesus, what's, what's going on? It's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, right? Obviously abusing this poor guy who's just possessed. Are, have you come to destroy us? They're starting to get a bit worried. Like, is, is God going to revoke the authority of the nations? Is he going to just start zapping them with his God cannon and destroy them or something? They're getting a bit scared. And so this, this happens in God's country, but a few chapters later in Mark chapter 5, we see a story that's very similar happen in the Gerasene. So let's go to Mark chapter 5. So they came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. Now this is ancient turf of the region of Bashan, right? And this region was known as Baal's territory. He was the Lord of the dead. Another name of Satan. Satan was made the Lord of Death after he introduced death into the world. So this is like, you, I, I could almost interpret it as like capital city of the bad guys, right? This is the main enemy territory. This is not God's country anymore. This is another nation that's under control of a different spiritual being. And so we have this wild man who comes out with an unclean spirit. He's, he's possessed and he can break off chains and he's super strong and he's... He cuts himself and he hurts himself and he does crazy stuff. So let's go to the next couple of verses. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly, please don't send us out of the country, the land that was under the dominion of the bad guys. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the pigs all drowned. I guess the demons didn't know how to pilot a pig body. They were probably used to human, and they got in there like, what the heck's going on? And they all drowned. I don't know. It's a bit weird. But we can see this is, this is not Israelite territory because Israelites don't take care of pigs. They're unclean animals, right? You just, that's a no-do. This is clearly a different people. But notice how they address Jesus. The previous one was like, hey, I know who you are. You're like, you're like the Holy One of God. 
But in another territory, they refer to him as son of the most high. Like, I know who you are, Jesus. You're not just some prophet of Israel. You are, you're, you're coming from the big guy directly. And notice how they have to ask Jesus permission to, to go and possess the pigs, right? So right here we see Jesus, he's starting to exercise a bit of authority, not just over the Israelite turf, but over the land of the enemy as well and the people that weren't God's people. Very interesting. God's up to something and the enemy doesn't know what to do with it. They're scared. They're not sure. How, what do, we, how do we deal with this plan that God's unfolding to, to fix what's wrong with the world? So let's jump forward to another story in Matthew chapter 16. This is one you would probably be quite familiar with. Uh, but again, we've got something different here. So, so Jesus and his disciples, they come to the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now again, we're in enemy territory. Uh, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and here it is, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, the Catholics interpret this verse, and they say, well, Peter, Petras, rock, Petra or something, they're very similar words, they're not quite the same, and Peter's the first pope. So Jesus is saying that I'm going to build the church on the pope. And then the Protestants get up and they're like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. On this rock, he's talking about himself, that Jesus is the cornerstone. On him, they're going to build the church, right? But I've come to believe that I don't think any one of them have got this right. Because that region where Jesus was, if you went there, the place where he is standing with his disciples, there's a really big rock. Like, you can't miss it. It's just this giant. And, and what Jesus is saying is, hey, we are in enemy territory. This is like known by the Israelites as the place where the, the evil began. This is, and, and, and what's more is, down the road, uh, within view of this place, there are these two ancient cities called Ashtoreth, Ashtaroth and Edrei, right? These two cities were... Uh, they, you can kind of trace them back to some of the wickedness that began in Genesis 6. And there were places um, known as gateways to the netherworld, right? They were places in which evil spiritual beings could come and go between earth and somewhere else. That was what they were known as. Now, what literally happened there? I don't know. We don't know. But that's what the Israelites thought about these places. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not be able to withstand it or shall not prevail against it. He's literally saying, hey, these, this region with those cities known of the gates of hell, on this rock, in, in the capital city of the enemy's territory, I'm going to build my church and they're not going to stand a chance. So Jesus is really picking a fight. 
he's gone to enemy territory to reveal. He's, he's like, who do you say that? And Peter's like, yep, you're right. I'm the son of, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the redemption of the whole world. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. In other words, we're going to start a war. We're going to start a war, boys. We're going to war. Exciting stuff. Yeah, and so then we have some more awesome empowerment about finding things on earth and in heaven. Another message again. Now, directly after that, verse 21. From that time, so as soon as Jesus has said this, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, no, 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 like, hey, Jesus is saying, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to be killed. I'm going to have to be attacked. I'm going to die. It's okay, I'm going to raise again. They didn't hear the raise again part. They're like, no, 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 Jesus, don't say that. Like, hey, we just started to wage war. Like, we're in enemy territory. You're pretty powerful. We've seen you do some awesome stuff. Don't, don't talk. Don't, you know, positive mindset. We've got to talk positive, right? Don't, don't, don't be negative, Jesus. And, and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Like, whoa, that's a bit of a slap in the face. Now, Satan, we read this capital letter S, Satan, as a proper name. But what that really is, is adversary. It means the adversary. Satan, the Satan is the adversary. So, so Jesus is saying, hey, if you're trying to stop what must happen, you're, you're my adversary. You're getting in the way of the plan, Peter. Like, calm down, mate. Calm down. You're, you're kind of almost going into bat for Satan, the bad guys, if you're going to get in the way of what needs to happen. Funnily enough, we see him cut a guy's ear off when Jesus tries to get when they try to arrest Jesus later, showing that he didn't really listen to the get behind me Satan thing. But anyway, I think that's pretty funny. Peter eventually gets it when he sees Jesus rise again. So, We've got this happen. Jesus has kind of openly declared, hey, I'm going to build my house, my church, my people in enemy territory. And then we go over to the next chapter, chapter 17. After six days, so not very long, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother and led them up a high mountain. Now, again, if you go there, it's very clear what mountain it is. There's only one choice for this. And in that region in enemy territory is a mountain called Mount Hermon. Now, what the Bible doesn't tell us immediately here is that this mountain was known by, by the Israelites and all the surrounding nations that this was the spot on earth that the watchers descended or the sons of God. The guys in Genesis 6 who rebelled and decided to come down to earth and corrupt humankind this was the place that they did it. This is where they showed up and everyone knew it. And so what place does, Je does Jesus pick to go and he climbs the mountain and he is transfigured. He, he like peels back a little bit of his humanity to reveal, boom, I am God. Where does he do it? Again, capital city of the enemy territory. The place where the corruption began is the place where Jesus reveals himself as God. It's not a coincidence. Jesus is picking a fight. He's got his like brave heart war paint on, and he's like, I'm going to pick a fight. And he's gone up there on the mountain, and he's like, shit, freedom. And Elijah and Moses show up, and Peter and James and John are just like, 
blown away. I can't wait till The Chosen gets to this scene. I don't know. It'll be a few seasons down. But man, they're going to have a lot of fun with this moment. Jesus is really picking a fight. And he's, he's sh- like all, all the spiritual beings, we can see, you know, they're sending demons to kind of figure out what's God's plan. What is God trying to do? How is he trying to save the world? And now Jesus is picking a fight with them. And they're like, nah, that's it. We've got to kill him. We, we don't know what he's trying to do. We can't let him establish any, any kind of kingdom here. We're not, they're not, we're not going to give him our people. They're our people now. They're not going back to God. Let's kill him. And literally within around two weeks from this moment, Jesus is dead. I mean, he's done 33 years of ministry. And then he goes and puts his foot in a big time. He, he pokes the bear. And a few weeks later, they kill him. Now, there's this verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.8. It says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, God's plan. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, what they didn't know, these spiritual beings, they didn't know that that was exactly what God wanted them to do. Because this is the beginning of God solving the problem. So we've got three problems, right? What's the first one? It's death. And how does Jesus solve the problem? Well, he lives a life where he doesn't have any debt of sin. He never disobeys God. He never has any sin, so he never has any debt to pay, which puts him in a unique position to take on the debt of others. And so he took on all of our debt. Everyone who had ever sinned, he took on what we owe to justice And he paid for it by dying. Death, the consequence that we should have got, he took it. And then Jesus goes and he resurrects. He rises again, defeating death and unlocking for us a resurrection as well. And so in this amazing moment of dying and rising again, he he solves this death problem that now... Because justice has been served and our bad deeds have been paid for, we can spend eternity in God's presence again. Colossians 2 verse 13 to 15 says this, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your first. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us, with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Then uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. There's uh, a little bit more. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death 
is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Christ Jesus. So I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible clearly teaches that you will be resurrected just like Jesus. That that body that he could he was resurrected in and he revealed himself to the disciples, hey, like, I'm here, now I'm not, now I am. Give me some cool food, mm, that's delicious, gotta go. I'm on the road, now I'm eating. He can do supernatural things and live forever. The Bible clearly says that Jesus unlocked that same resurrection for us. So when you physically die, it is not the end. It's not. It says some of us may sleep. In other words, some of us will die before Jesus comes back. Some of us will be alive when he does come back. But when the trumpet sounds at the end, when Jesus returns, if you're, if you're dead, you've been resurrected. If you're alive, you get a new resurrection body. You, you will be transformed into this eternal being. That is what this promise says, which blows my mind. But God destroyed death through his resurrection. Then the next one, the next problem was corruption, this wickedness that influenced people. And, and how is God to deal with this? Well, he fixes it by transformation. In John chapter 14, we can read this. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or a helper to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. This is before Jesus dies. We see this gets fulfilled uh, in Acts chapter 2 and then in 2 Corinthians 3 we can read this. Now the Lord is the Spirit. This Spirit that's going to be with you, it is Jesus. It is God. It is him. And where the Spirit of the Lord is in you, there is freedom complete freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. In other words, the more that you press into God, the more that you get to know him, the more that you pursue him and spend time just going, wow, the more that you receive his glory, the more that you are going to be transformed. See, God, he sent Holy Spirit to be able to live within you, to give you all power over spiritual darkness and temptation. By yourself, you don't have any hope. You can't overcome that thing. You will sin. You will mess up. You're human. You're broken. You're frail. You're imperfect. But with the Spirit of God, freedom living within you, that is all the power you will ever need to overcome all corruption. And I think that is pretty incredible. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's our decision. Do we call upon the Spirit of the Lord that is within us to empower us? Or do we continue to live in our own ways? We have a choice. We still have free will. So God, Jesus fixed two problems. He died, he gave us resurrection, and then he sent the Holy Spirit to deal with corruption. But there's a third problem, right? The separation. We're not his people. Well, he solves that 
with this thing called adoption. Matthew chapter 28. Oh, you guys get in those summary slides? I forgot they were there. It's all right, we'll go back to them. Great job, Jordan. He's got my back on the slides. Jesus came and said to them, so this is after Jesus is resurrected. Like, he's about to go back up to heaven, and he's got his disciples, and he says, get this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the edge of the age. Does this mean something new to you now? Like all nations, he's saying at Babel, God divided up the people because they didn't want to be his. They rebelled. We, we didn't want to be God's people. And we were under these other gods, these other spiritual beings that didn't, they didn't have our best interests. They ruled us badly. We can see that in Psalm 82. And now Jesus is saying, hey, their authority over you is now void. God has decided that all the authority over all peoples on earth is mine. And I am saying to you, I'm going to be with you and in you. My spirit's going to live in you, which means now you have the authority to go to all nations, all peoples, and reclaim the nation back into my family. In other words, Go and get your brothers and sisters. We're, we're one big happy family again. And you have the authority to do that. In other words, no spiritual being has the right to get in your way. You have authority over every, every nation because Jesus has the authority and he lives within you. In Acts chapter 2, we see the beginnings of this, right? So the Holy Spirit comes. Pentecost happens. We see they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire, and then get this bit at the end. At this particular time, dwelling in Jerusalem, there are Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You know how we talked about how Israel got separated? They got attacked and invaded in the Old Testament, and they, were just, they just got sent out into all the nations? Well, God is using that. Because there was this festival that they all, the Pentecost festival, called them all back home to Jerusalem. And that was when he lit the fire. And now all these people from all the other nations who are about to go back home are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they're like, what is this? And Peter gets up and he says, basically gives them the gospel. He says, Jesus has come. And, and all of them, well, not all of them, but 3,000 of them say, oh my goodness, this is incredible. The Messiah has come. And they're filled with the Spirit. And then they go back to their nations. You know how the Bible says, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So the Jews took this good gospel message back to the Jews of all of the other nations. All the scattered Jews in Ethiopia and all the surrounding nations that they'd been set away to. God started to reclaim his people. And then they could take it to the Gentiles from where they were. It's really cool. But it doesn't just end there. And this is, this is a bit of a mind-blowing part. Let's look at John chapter 1, verse 12. So we're talking about God being the Word. And then it says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are, look at this word, sons of God. That's not an accident. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the holy ones, some translations call this the saints, but it's actually the holy ones, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, in other words, the holy ones I just referred to is you, the church, you are incompetent, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? New Testament, so this is the broad spiritual being term. How much more then matters pertaining to this life? If, if that all kind of goes over your head, let me simplify it for you. In the New Testament, all of these terms like the holy ones and the sons of God that were used to represent spiritual beings in the Old Testament, they were all now repurposed to talk about the church, us. And God, what God is saying is that the sons of God, and I think I've got this pyramid here. So, so there's this hierarchy in heaven, so to speak. You've got the most high. He's the top dog. He created everything. Then he's got his council or the sons of God. And then there are the angels, the ones that do the messaging, but the worker ants, so to speak. And there's this hierarchy of power. And, and what he's saying is some of the sons of God who've rebelled through this whole story, I'm kicking them off the council. They lost their place. And instead, you are going to replace them on my team. God's spiritual family and his earthly family start to be merged into one. And you now have the, the role to be on God's council. In other words, he wants to rule the world through you. He wants you to be his hands and feet. He wants you to carry his authority into dark places. He wants you to go out and reclaim the nations. He wants you to have a say in what goes on. He wants you to be a leader. You are one of the sons of God. It's all right, girls. It still applies to you. We are children of God. And that's just not like, oh, it's so nice. I can call him Daddy God. It's so much more powerful than that. You're, you're one of the big dogs. You've got the authority. You've got the, the power. And if you understand that, God will use your life in ways that you couldn't even imagine. And, and no spiritual darkness will have any chance trying to hold you down and stop you because you outrank them. Do you know you outrank the devil in the spiritual hierarchy of the world? You outrank him now. Because you received and believed in Jesus. So let's have a look. God's story of redemption, the restoration of his family. And I use this little pun of a cross, Jesus' cross being a plus sign. I hope you picked that up. I explained it if you didn't. 
But his spiritual family and his earthly family intersect now because you belong on, on his council, on his group that he wants to rule the world with. And let's have another look. Here we go. Here's my summary slide, so I hope you can understand what we've gone on. See, Jesus' blood dealt with the problem of death, corruption, and separation. And restoration uh, was found through resurrection, transformation, and adoption. And now we've got one big happy family. You can't see the resurrection text on this projector, but it says resurrection. And so I've said all of that over the past two weeks and probably an hour and a half of talking. I'm sorry if you don't like my voice. Deal with it. To answer one question, right? What's the question? What does God want? Let's have a look. God wants to spend eternity with us as we represent him ruling over and taking care of his creation. He wants us to follow his ways and live holy lives empowered by his spirit. And he wants the whole world to be brought back into his family. In short, God wants you. He wants you. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care what your story is. Look at Israel's story, man. That was an emotional roller coaster. He wants you and his family. He wants us to be his people. And as his church, as his people, he wants us to go and get everyone else. There's room in my family for more. Go, go, go. We, we need to reclaim the nations. We've got the authority over them now. He wants you. If I could get the band up. I just wanted to take a moment because I've given you, a, I want to say, a hell of a lot of scripture. I guess we could say that. A lot of scripture over the past couple of weeks. And we've talked about some real, but it all comes down to this simple answer, which is that God wants you. And so I wanted to take a few minutes while the band plays where you can just have a moment between you and God. Maybe you didn't realize that God wants you. Maybe you didn't understand the lengths that he went to so that he could have you again. But he does. And we've talked a lot about philosophy and theology and and how to logically justify why we should think God is real. And it's good to have that foundation. But you know what? I I went around and and got some feedback from different huddles in in our youth ministry. And... And when we ask the question and the open question of why do you believe God is real? When did you come to believe that? Every single answer I heard, which is awesome, was not, oh, because of this logical argument. It was because God met me. He chased me down. He showed me that He was real. I experienced Him. He was there when I needed Him. God's existence can be logically thought out, but it can also be experientially felt. That's where the real 
convincing happens. It's not through wise words. It's through the presence of God. And He wants to meet with you tonight. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me.